Well, guys, back in December, I was invited to a meeting that I was really, really eager for. It was at the Clemens Unit, the prison at 2004 and 36 between Brazoria and Jones Creek. And years ago, I had done prison ministry out at the Clemens Unit, and I hadn't been in a while. So I was really, really excited to go back to prison. It had been a long time. But I will tell you this, man, I was not prepared for the meeting that I would experience that day. I was not prepared for the inspirational blessing that it would be for me. What we were doing is three pastors, me and two others, went in that day to meet with three life sentence serving inmates. Three guys that are serving life sentences that are also ministers there in the Clemens unit. So this was our agenda. We were talking about what it would look like to ordain them to the pastoral ministry. And we were talking about planting a church inside the unit for the inmates that was led by the inmates. So the six of us sat alone in the big space that is the Clemens chapel. We were in that meeting for hours. We prayed, we dreamed, we affirmed one another in ministry and in Christ. We listened, we encouraged. I'll tell you, man, I had to go because I had to go pick up my kids from school and I wasn't allowed to have a phone or a watch. So I looked, I was like, somebody have a clock? I need to know what time it is. And it was time. And I was so sad that I had to leave the meeting early, but I was glad to go get my kids. But I was sad because it was such an inspirational, awesome experience. And the reason why is those three pastors who happen to be life sentence serving inmates. Man, they're so special. These guys have huge tender hearts for Jesus. These guys have a deep love for people. These guys have a desire to see their fellow inmates discover, develop, and deploy faith in Jesus. They love the Bible. They love studying the Bible and sharing the Bible. And they just want so much to generously share with others what God has so generously shared with them. And as I heard their stories and I listened to their hearts, I was so full and I left so encouraged and inspired that day. Now, my guess is you hear that story and you hear about that meeting and that experience that you may have some questions. You may have a million questions about what does it look like to plant a prison uh, church, to plant a church inside the prison with prisoners as the pastors. Maybe you do, but maybe your greatest question is this. If it's anything like this, how did these guys, how did these three guys go from committing a crime that's worthy of life to living a life leading others to Jesus. How does that happen? How can this be? How is that real? Maybe that's what you're thinking this morning. If it is, man, I've got an answer for you. Actually, the scriptures have an answer for us, a clear answer. And here's the key word as we begin. Conversion. Conversion. And I want you to see the story of conversion in Acts chapter 9. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, we'll be in the the book of Acts as we continue to walk through this journey through the book of Acts. We're in the ninth chapter, and we're going to start with verse 1. If you don't have a Bible this morning, that's okay. We'll put the words up on the screen. You can follow along as I teach. I'd love for you to download the BPF app or go to the Welcome Center in the foyer and get a free copy of the Bible this morning. So as you turn, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the gospels. They tell the the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, our Lord. And then you get into this book of Acts that talks about the origins and the foundations of the church. So we're in our second series in Acts. And I want to recap a little bit about what we've already seen in series two of Acts. What we've seen so far is Stephen, this faithful, faith-filled follower of Jesus, was killed by a mob because of his preaching and teaching and belief and Jesus, and you would think that the church would shrink back as a result of that killing. But instead, what happens is the church grows, it spreads. The gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And what we see is that people, both Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, are coming to faith in Christ and they're converting to following Christ, converting to what we would now call Christianity. And it's so remarkable to see these stories of transformation. 
They're absolutely awe-inspiring. Last week, we saw a really powerful one with Philip and the Ethiopian official. And we saw the Ethiopian official's conversion as he came to faith in Christ. And what we see in the book of Acts is that God is on the move in a way that we long to see God be on the move in our day and in our lives. And then you get to today's passage and today's recording of a story of conversion. And I would tell you that the story that you will hear today is the most famous epic conversion story in all of history. Like my heart has been beating a thousand miles a minute this morning, not because of that vote, but because of this passage. It's so good. It's so good. And I want you to go back one verse as we pick up right where we left off last week. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in our towns until he reached Caesarea. Meanwhile, the gospel is spreading. And meanwhile, at the same time, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Saul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what the the church was referred to in that day, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If he found any that belonged to Christ, to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, Damascus is another town outside of Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so let's begin by asking, who is this Saul? Who is this Saul that's breathing murderous threats? Who is this Saul that's obtaining permission to take his reign of terror against the church beyond Jerusalem and into neighboring communities? He is the same terrorist that approved of Stephen's murder in Acts chapter 7. He is the same destroyer that was going house by house, pulling Christ followers out of their homes in persecution. He is the same one that is this self-appointed chief persecutor of Jesus's church that's trying to extinguish Jesus's movement, not just in Jerusalem, but beyond. But there's even more that you need to know about this, this guy, Saul, than what we see here in Acts chapter six, seven, eight, and nine. There's even more here that you need to hear and understand about who he is and who he was and what made him move. For you to best understand that, I want to take you to another place in the Bible. You can just follow on the screens at this point. I want you to hear from Paul's own words or Saul's own words, what he said in a book he wrote, Philippians chapter three. This is how he describes himself. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He said, if it's about trusting in ourselves, I have more reason to trust in my own deeds and abilities than you. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. The Pharisees were this sect that were the most serious about the law keeping, keeping the law of God and the man-made laws around God's law. Verse six, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And Paul knew that his law keeping wasn't perfect, but he thought that it was really, really good. It was about as close to perfect as you could get. And so in this space, what Paul is doing is he's describing himself. He's describing who he was in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. He's describing what he placed his trust in. He's saying here, man, I trusted in, I boasted in, I had confidence in myself because of who I was born to be, what nation I was born into. I had confidence and trust in myself, faith in myself, because the things that I had done, the education that I had, the ways that I had pursued, the things that I came to know and to understand and was teaching, 
He had faith and confidence in his own deep religious zeal. He had confidence in his exceptional law keeping that he knew wasn't perfect, but he felt like it was probably good enough. Saul's deep religious zeal and his faith in himself is ultimately what led him, motivated him to bring terror against the church of Jesus. And what you see in this man in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, is that he was so legalistic, he was so headstrong, he was so hard-hearted, he was so vile and violent, but he was so pleased with himself. He was so pleased with himself and the things that he was doing. That's who he was, who he was. But then something radical happens. This passage is often referred to as the Damascus Road experience because he was on the road to Damascus. And on the Damascus Road, this man had a collision with the resurrected person and power of Jesus Christ. And the impact of that power, the impact of that collision was so very great that he was knocked off of his feet unaware of what had hit him. At this point, you could safely say that he was wrecked. And he lay there on the ground. And as he looks up, not sure if he's even able to see because of the brightness of all that he has experienced, he mutters out and mumbles out, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? But his question comes as a response to a question that's asked of him. As he's in that spot of collision, that purpose of that collision was a confrontation He has a confrontation with Jesus himself. And this is what Jesus asks him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, the epic collision led to an epic confrontation that's ultimately all about an epic, famous, masterful conversion. The conversion happens eventually. You'll see it. Let's pick back up in 9.4. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there, speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And what you see here is the beginning, right? This is the beginning of the Pharisee becoming a follower. This is the beginning of the the transformation of Saul, of the one who was a terrorist against the church, becoming a missionary for the church. This is the transformation from Saul to Paul. And this guy that in Acts 9 we know is Saul, we know today more popularly as the apostle Paul. We know him as the one who wrote Philippians, the very words that we read in Philippians 3. He authored with with God's leadership so much of the Bible, not just Philippians, but also Galatians, Ephesians, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Titus, Philemon, 1 and 2 Timothy. That's who this Paul or Saul is. He's the missionary, church planter, pastor that led the church in the first century. The Saul who we see imprisoning Christians ultimately would be an imprisoned Christian himself, going to prison at least six times because of his faith and ministry for Christ. The guy that we see on the road to Damascus is ultimately the Apostle Paul. But this is where it starts. It starts with this epic collision where he's wrecked by Jesus, this epic confrontation where he's called out by Christ. And the once wildly arrogant Saul 
response from the ground, literally and physically, but also spiritually with humility. And he just simply asks a real life question. Who are you, Lord? And the word Lord here is the Greek word karios. It's a word that would be referred to a master. Someone that I recognize is in control over me. What you see in this moment is that the collision and the confrontation, it is beginning to lead to conversion. And that word conversion, I've said it 15 times already. It's an interesting word, isn't it? And the truth is, it's not a word that we use here a whole lot at Brazos Point. We've chosen some other words for, for reason, but it's a good word and it's a necessary word. It's a word that I'm glad we're talking about today. So as we think about conversion, like I want to I take you to the dictionary definition because religious or spiritual conversion to Christ, I mean, that's not the only kind of conversion that, that something or someone could go through. So what is a conversion? Go to the dictionary. Conversion is the process of changing or causing something to change from one form to another. That's awesome. That's a great description. And what the book of Acts does for us is it displays over and over and over again the conversion of people to Christ. We see great epic stories with great detail of people, disciples, coming to faith in Christ, discovering the hope, the person, the work, the relationship with Jesus Christ that we have come to love and to know. We see their conversion stories, but what you see as you see them unfold in Acts is that from one to the next, man, they're all different. And it's such a good and awesome picture of how the Lord works in all of our lives so uniquely and differently. He meets us on so many different places and so many different paths and so many different ways. And your story is unique from your story and your story is unique from my story. And Acts 8 and 9, man, they demonstrate that so well. Just look to what we saw last week with Philip and the Ethiopian official. His story, on the road, the desert road, is so different from Acts 9 and Paul's story on the Damascus road because God is at work. And he's at work in so many different ways. And he brings about conversion by so many different means and methods. But there are some pieces and parts, man, that are always the same, regardless of what your story is. There's some ingredients that God always uses in conversion. And maybe at this point, man, you're sitting there going, am I converted? Good. That's exactly what I had hoped. That is exactly what I would pray that you would ask this week. Because here's the deal, guys. When it comes to conversion, you either are or you aren't. You either are or you are not yet. You're either hot or cold, but there's nothing in between. And as you look at and dissect and understand Paul's story, what I, what I believe at this point in the story is that Paul is not yet converted. But man, there has been an intentional collision and a confrontation that's ultimately leading to that space of conversion. And that idea of collision, that's one of the ingredients that has to be there. We have to collide with the person and work of Christ. We have to get to that place and to that point where we ask for ourselves and explore, who are you, Lord? Right? Who is this Jesus? Is he Lord or is he a liar? Are the things that he says true or is he some kind of lunatic? Because the reality is he can't be both. It's either one or the other. And in this moment when Paul says, who are you, Lord? He gives us a really necessary question that we must ask in thinking about conversion. And in this moment when Paul 
is in this process of change and formation where something is happening to him and something is causing him to change from what he is to something new. What you see in this moment, in these moments, is that Paul is surrendering to a God that is not of his own creation. I mean, think about that. If the apostle Paul, if Saul, if the murderous terrorist against the church was going to create a God of his own choosing, it would never be this God. He was fighting to prove that Jesus Christ is not God. He was fighting to extinguish the movement that was proclaiming that Jesus Christ is God. He would never convert to this of his own creation. And there's a lesson for us in that as we think about, am I converted, man? Understand this. You're not. If you're looking at God and you're just picking and choosing the parts that you like, if it's like a buffet and you take the parts that you like, but you reject the parts that you don't like, that's really not a conversion. That's you making a God of your, your own creation. And for conversion to be real, for it to, to be effective, like it has to be rooted in deep surrender and submission where we, submin, we surrender and submit to the God who created us rather than the God of our own creation. And we come to this point that we recognize, man, that he conforms and forms us into his image and into the likeness of his son. Not that we're forming or conforming him into our image or what we like. No, there's no way that's possible. He's the creator. He's the inventor. He's the authority. We are the ones that must surrender and submit. And we begin to see that and understand that when we truly collide with Christ. And we come to this point of confrontation. And we ask for ourselves, who is the Lord? After this collision... From the impact, Saul experienced three somber, scary days of blindness and hunger. He was weak. This Hebrew of Hebrews, this educated Pharisee of Pharisees, this zealous one was weak and needy. He was blind and he was hungry. And in those three days, man, I can't help but think that that guy had to be thinking and rethinking everything that he thought he knew about life. He was thinking and rethinking everything that he thought that he knew about God. He was saying all of that education, all of that training, all of that preparation, and he was running it through the filter of his experience of this collision on the Damascus Road and the confrontation with Christ. And he's rethinking everything that he thought that he knew about following God and living for him. Why? Because he encountered the resurrected Jesus. And that changed everything. And then in verses 10 through 19, what you see is that God sends this reluctant but obedient disciple named Ananias. He sends him to go to Saul. Just think about this. This guy, Ananias, who is a professed disciple of Jesus Christ, going to the disciple of Christ killer. How scary would that be? And Ananias was scared, but he was obedient. He had what we saw last week, that reflex to obey, this hear and obey, move when the Lord says move. And he goes to Saul. He goes to him, and we'll talk a little bit about what that is. But as you, you look at this and you look at Acts 9, man, I want you to go read 10 through 19 later today because these verses create some, some really awesome detail that I would love for you to encounter and impact your life. But for now, I just want you to focus on verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man, Saul, he is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And in these moments, God is telling the future of Paul's story. Not just who he is, but what he will become. 
Guys, you're going to see it unfold in the book of Acts. It's absolutely awesome. In the weeks to come, you'll see more and more of the future of what God is forming Paul into being. You're going to see what it looked like for God to choose him to be the apostle, to take the, the word, to take the, the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. You'll see what it looks like for him to preach in the synagogues. You'll see these things. But what I want you to see today is this, that in these moments at his conversion, what's happening is Jesus is giving him a new name. Jesus is giving him a new life. Jesus is giving him a new identity. Jesus is giving him new purpose. He's a new creation in Christ. And what's happening in these moments of his conversion is this adversary is becoming the apostle. It's a calling and a commissioning that Christ has placed on his life. And Ananias got to be God's messenger to go to him, to embrace him as a brother and to lay hands on him. Man, that was terrifying. But how beautiful this is, this picture of acceptance as this scared but faithful follower of Jesus goes to this killer of Christians and he embraces him and he accepts him into the family and he calls him brother. It's amazing. And in these moments of Acts 9, the temporary blindness that was affecting his eyes is relieved. In these moments in Acts chapter 9, the Holy Spirit of God fills the apostle Paul. Praise God for that. In these moments in Acts chapter 9, we see him being baptized. And what you see is this guy who despised Jesus is then buried with Jesus in baptism, in faith and obedience, committing himself to Christ and to the Christian community. And make no mistake, at this point in Paul's story, he is converted. He's transformed. And at once, at once, that's what verse 20 tells us, at once he began, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And when you look at verses 20 through 22, man, this is what I want you to see. He is not who he was. In Christ, he's something new. How? Conversion. The process of changing or causing something to change from one form to another. There's a conversion that's taking place here and you don't have to take my word for it, man. Take the Apostle Paul's word for it. Go back to Philippians 3. Look back on the screens. In the previous verses, he said, this is who I was. I was someone that had so much confidence in myself and faith in my flesh. I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. I was the Pharisee. I was the zealous one. This is now who I am. Verse seven, but whatever were gains to me, all of those things that I talked about, my resume before Christ, all of those things that were gained to me, I now consider loss. They're rubbish for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord, right? There's nothing greater than knowing Christ for whose sake I have lost all things. Don't take my word for it. Take Paul's word for it. First Corinthians 15, for I am the least of the apostles and I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by grace, by what? By grace, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. The grace of God has transformed this man. First Timothy one, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. 
I was shown what? Mercy. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me, poured out on me abundantly in ways that we can't even begin to understand. Along with the faith and love, mercy, grace, faith, and love, these are important ingredients that are in Christ. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ, his grace and mercy, his amazing grace for sinners. It's amazing, isn't it? What great grace. And in this most famous conversion in all of history, what you see here is a great work of God and no one else. It's a great work of God's grace and mercy. And the most critical ingredient for conversion, guys, it's this, it's grace. The most important ingredient is grace. You can't have conversion without grace. But other important ingredients are this, knowing that you need it, recognizing your need for Jesus, recognizing your own sinful condition, recognizing that you cannot do it yourself, but you need what Christ has done for you, knowing and accepting your neediness and recognizing that in Christ we have more than enough. That's a necessary ingredient for conversion. And what you see in this is that that Paul was powerfully converted from trusting in what he was doing and to believing and trusting in what Christ had done. And that's why the gospel is good news. The gospel is good news because it's a message of done, not do. It's not do and do and do and do more. It's not behave and behave and behave and behave better. It's not go here, do this, do that. No, 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 no. Don't misunderstand all that activity for the gospel. The gospel is this. We are made acceptable and accepted in love by God for one thing and one thing only what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and with the empty tomb. That's what he's done. And you look at Paul and you go, man, this guy believed that he was the worst of all sinners. But man, more powerfully, he knew that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was more than enough for his rescue, to rescue him from his mistakes, his past, his terror against the church, his evil acts, his violence, was more than enough to rescue him from all of the consequences of death that he deserved, to rescue him from an eternity separated from God in hell, which he deserved. He didn't have to face those consequences. Why? Because grace is great. Because Jesus is amazing. And so we go back to the start. How do three life sentence serving inmates become ministers, pastors in their own prison? Conversion. The same God who converted Paul in Damascus Road is still converting lives and changing hearts today. Conversion. Converting us from something old to something new. Even better, converting us from someone dead to someone who is alive. And even converting us away from the things that are seemingly good, right? Maybe today you're here, and as you compare yourself to my friends at the Clemens unit, you go, well, I'm not like them. Well, guess what? You need Jesus just as much. And that's one of the things that Paul was converted from, his trust in himself, his own righteous works and good deeds, right? They're not enough. 
There's no amount of good that's good enough for us to bridge the gap between us and God. And so the only good that could bridge that gap is the work of Christ on the cross and the empty tomb. He has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so we need to repent of the seemingly good things in our life that we have misplaced our faith in. That may be you today. We all have something in our story that we have to be converted from as we come into this collision and confrontation with Christ. When we answer the question, who is the Lord? And for conversion to be real, man, these ingredients have to be present. So how do we know when conversion is real? Think about it. Look at my pastor friends in the prison. Look at the Apostle Paul. See, when collision with Christ leads to confrontation and conversion, there will be change. That is what grace does. The work of grace in our life is that it brings about this kind of transformation, forming us, conforming us, the Holy Spirit moving in us, moving us from who we were to who we are becoming as we follow Christ. There will be change and transformation. Paul and the pastors in Clemens, man, they're a great picture of change. And those guys, all four of them, they're awesome. But you know what? They're not amazing. Now, what's amazing is Christ and his power, and his power to save, and his power to transform, and his power to move in our lives, his power to take Paul and move him from being the imprisoner to the imprisoned, to move him from being the adversary to the apostle, the the terrorist to the evangelist, the Pharisee to the follower. And God has the same power to move you, to move you from something old to something new, to move you from sinner to saint, to move you today from death to life. It's who he is and what he does. When you look at the lives of Paul and my friends in the Clemens unit, man, you see there's nothing those four could do to atone for the things that they had done. Nothing. And that's just as true for me and for you. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to atone for our lives. And the gospel tells us you don't have to. And when you really begin to believe and realize that you don't have to, that it's not about what you do, but what Christ has done, let me tell you something. That brings a work of transformation to the depths of your soul that gives you a rest and a peace that is absolutely unlike anything else. And it sets us free. It's liberating and it's good. And so this morning, there's some of you that just need to stop. Stop your endless self-justification. Stop and just simply accept in faith what Christ has done for you and convert Convert, rest, find peace in the finished work of Jesus and surrender yourself fully to him. And my guess is that someone this morning for the first time has heard something that's actually worth converting to. And if that's you, I want to give you that opportunity. Let's pray. This morning, maybe you are on a collision of your own with Christ and you've been confronted. If you're ready to convert and surrender yourself fully to Jesus, and what I want to ask you to do this morning is something a little different. If you would, just raise your head and look up at me and raise your hand. I want to pray for you. If that's you, raise your head and your hand.
Maybe this morning you're on a collision and a confrontation and you're not quite ready. You've got questions. That's okay. I think it took Paul days to process what Jesus did to him. Maybe this morning you hear the story of the Apostle Paul and you hear the story of change and you see how this guy exchanged absolute zeal against the church and against Christ and it exchanged for absolute zeal for Christ and the church. And you see that there is only hot or cold in regards to where you are in Christ. And this morning you go, man, I just need change. I can't live lukewarm any longer. If that's you, raise your hand in your head. Look at me. Father, I bring all of these before you in prayer. Guys, if you are ready to convert and surrender yourself to Jesus, you just simply pray. Pray for yourself. Pray to God. Surrender your life to him. Confess your sin. Accept Christ. Tell him you need him. Give your life to him. From your heart to God's ears, lay your life down. Ask him to move you from death to life to give you the spirit to transform and change. God, I pray over everyone in this room, for the ones who are questioning, for the ones who are ready, and for the ones who are tired of living cold. We believe in your power to transform. Change our hearts, oh God. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.